Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. My name is Ian Bergson and I'm a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers. Today's episode is a recording of a webinar event that we hosted in September 2023. The panel discussion was on the implications of the recent landmark decision of the Supreme Court in Philip and Barclays Bank on the so-called Quintscare duty, in which the all-fountain court counsel team represented Barclays, the successful appellant. I was joined by my fellow counsel team, Patrick Goodall Casey and David Murray, on the webinar. During the session, we spoke about the reasoning and ramifications of the decision in Philip, where the Supreme Court's decision leaves the so-called Quintscare duty, the limits of apparent or ostensible authority in an agency context, recent regulatory and legislative developments in relation to APP fraud, including by way of the recently enacted Financial Services and Markets Act 2023. I hope you enjoy the episode. very much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, for those that don't know me, I'm Patrick Goodall, and I'm joined today by uh, David Murray and Ian Bergson. And the three of us uh, appeared for Barclays in the Phillips case uh, in the Supreme Court, which is going to be the, the, the topic of our talk today. Now, we've divided the, the session into three parts, uh, and David is going to speak on the first topic, which is the Quince of Authorities up to and including the Court of Appeal decision uh, in the Philip case. So over to you, David. So in order to understand what the Supreme Court decided in Philip and its implications for the future development of the law, um, it's helpful, I think, to begin by considering the state of the law before a Supreme Court decision. Uh, Philip, as I'm sure everyone knows, um, concerned the alleged breach by Barclays of what had come to be known as the bank's quince care duty. Uh, Now, often when you see a legal uh, concept have been referred to by the name of a case, um, it starts alarm bells ringing because it can mean uh, that the idea underpinning the concept can't be explained clearly by reference to established principles. Uh, and as we will see, the Supreme Court has now effectively told us that that is true also of the so-called uh, quince care duty. So in terms of quince care itself, the name of the duty obviously comes from the case of Barclays and quince care, a decision of Mr Justice Stain from 1988, but which was in fact only reported in 1992. Um, and although Mr Justice Dane drew on the reasoning uh, in a number of previous cases, Quintscare had come to be seen as the leading authority on, on this topic and had therefore given its name to the doctrine uh, recognised in the judgment. Um, the facts of the case were fairly straightforward. An individual called Mr Stiller uh, was the chairman of Quintscare and he persuaded the bank, uh, Barclays, um, to lend Quintscare £500,000 to purchase a chain of chemist shops. Um, Mr. Stiller was authorised uh, by Quintscare to issue payment instructions on the company's behalf. Uh, and it was on Mr. Stiller's instructions that the bank paid the money uh, to a newly formed company in the United States um, from where Mr. Stiller duly absconded with it. The bank sued Quintscare to recover the money it had lent, uh, and the company raised the issue of breach of duty by way of defence and counterclaim. Um, Mr. Justice Stone reviewed the previous authorities on claims against banks for misapplying funds. Um, most of which uh, were based on allegations of dishonest assistance. But quite apart from the possibility of dishonest assistance claims, uh, Mr Justice Day identified a duty of care which arises in contract and tort, where a bank, which is the customer's agent for the purpose of complying with payment instructions, so where the bank is the customer's agent in executing the, the customer's instruction to make payment from the customer's account. Uh, and Mr Justice Day said that this duty is just one aspect of the uh, bank of a duty that uh, to take reasonable care, which an agent, in this case the bank, owes its principal or the customer when complying with the customer's instruction. And the way in which the duty was expressed by Mr. Justice Dane was to say that the bank must refrain from executing a payment instruction if and for so long as uh, the bank has reasonable grounds for believing that the instruction is an attempt to misappropriate the funds of the customer. Uh, and the duty framed in these terms was designed to protect the customer. Uh, from a fraud being perpetrated by the person issuing the instructions on the customer's behalf, uh, such as Mr. Stiller in the case of Quintscare, who had issued the payment instructions ostensibly on behalf of the company, but in reality to steal the funds in its account. I set out on the slide here uh, the main passage which sets out uh, Mr. Justice Dane's core reasoning. Uh, I'm not going to read it all out, 
Um, but there are two points worth noting. The first is that, as you can see from the second sentence, which begins four lines down in the passage, Mr. Justice Dane approached the case on the basis that the payment instruction issued by Mr. Stiller was what he called a valid and proper order because Mr. Stiller was generally authorised to issue payment instructions on Quince Care's behalf. Uh, secondly, uh, Mr. Justice Stane thought that he was required to carry out a balancing exercise between two countervailing interests. On the one hand, the bank's primary duty to pay promptly when it receives instructions which conform to the mandate. And on the other, on the other hand, the bank's duty to exercise skill and care, quotes, in and about executing a payment instruction issued on behalf of the customer. And as you can see in the bold passage at the end, uh, Mr. Justice Day's formulation of the duty was designed to achieve what he called a sensible compromise between these two competing interests. These two passages set out in a bit more detail the competing considerations that Mr. Justice Day was trying to balance. So on the, on the one hand, that the law should not impose too burdensome an obligation on bankers, which hampers the effective transacting of banking business unnecessarily. And on the other hand, that the law should guard against the facilitation of fraud. Um, as Ian will go on to explain, um, the Supreme Court has now told us that Mr Justice Dane was wrong to regard the bank as being under two conflicting duties which require some kind of compromise to reconcile them. And the Supreme Court has also told us uh, that the second factor identified by Mr Justice Dane, need to combat fraud, etc., was not something that Mr Justice Dane, as a judge applying common law principles applicable to banking contracts, um, should have been concerning himself with at all. So as I mentioned at the beginning, Mr Justice Dane drew on a number of previous authorities when formulating what he regarded as the applicable principles. And one of the most important of these uh, was the first instance judgment in Lipkin, Gorman and Cartnail, uh, the case about the solicitor who stole money from his firm's client account to fund his gambling habit. Uh, the firm sued the casino where the gambling had taken place to try to recover the funds, and it also brought a claim against uh, its bank, which had allowed the solicitor, Mr Cass, to withdraw the money. Um, perhaps the most important of uh, the principles identified by Mr Justice Elliott and approved by Mr Justice Stane uh, was the second, uh, which we've already seen reflected in the, in the language of Kunzkeer itself, where he says that the bank is not obliged to question any transaction which is in accordance with the mandate unless a reasonable banker would have grounds for be believing that the authorised signatories are misusing their authority for the purpose of defrauding the principal or otherwise defeating his true intention. So there's a clear emphasis there on the duty being directed uh, at dishonest agents of the customer who issue payment instructions to the bank in order to defraud the customer by misappropriating the funds in the customer's account. In Care, Mr Justice Dane held on the facts and that the bank was not on notice of Mr Siller's dishonesty, and so the company's defence to the bank's claim failed. And after Care was decided, the Lipkin-Gorman case went to the Court of Appeal uh, where the claim against the bank failed, again on the ground that the bank was not aware of any facts which should have caused it to refuse to honour the payment instructions issued by Mr Cass. Now, one of the oddities um, in the development of the so-called quick care principle is that following Lipkin-Gorman in 1989, uh, there was then a period of hiatus during which the quick care doctrine effectively sat in abeyance for um, nearly 30 years. But the, the hibernation of Quidscare came to a dramatic end in 2017 with the case of Singularis and Daiwa. This was the first, and I think it's the only case in which a bank has been found to have acted in breach of the Quidscare duty. Uh, it was also, as Paul uh, Leggett said in Philip, the first case to use the expression Quidscare duty. Um, so in Singularis, uh, Mr. Arsenea uh, was the sole shareholder, director, and chairman of Singularis, the claimant company. Uh, Singularis held an account with Daiwa, an investment bank, um, containing money uh, that was the proceeds of share sales. Uh, Mr. Alcinea instructed Daiwa to transfer the funds to other companies um, controlled by Mr. Alcinea in order to satisfy the obligations of those companies, although there was no legitimate purpose for the payments so far as Singularis itself was concerned. Singularis went into liquidation and it sued Daiwa for wrongly allowing the payments to be made on Mr. Alcinea's say-so. Um, it brought claims in both dishonest assistance and for breach of the Quince Care duty. Um, at the trial, um, Dyer was held liable for breach of the Quince Care duty on the basis that there were many glaring and obvious signs that Mr. Arsenea was perpetrating a fraud, uh, but the bank was held not to have been dishonest. Uh, and that 
perhaps gives a clue to why Prince Care um, had become an attractive route for claimants, um, because there was no need to prove dishonesty on the part of the bank. Um, it's enough if there were reasonable grounds on which the bank should have appreciated uh, that the person issuing the instructions was doing so dishonestly. The standard is negligence. At the trial, the damages awarded to Singularis were reduced by the trial judge, and this was upheld by the Court of Appeal, uh, by 25% um, for contributory negligence. But that's an aspect of the result which, um, as Paddy will go on to cover, uh, may be difficult to support um, following Philip. Uh, Singularis also went to the Supreme Court in 2019. By that stage, though, there was no challenge to the judge's finding that the duty had been owed and breached, and Dawa instead uh, concentrated on a number of arguments based on attribution of Mr. Alcinet's knowledge to Singularis, uh, which it said uh, should have the effect of defeating the claim, uh, but those arguments were all rejected. Uh, so the existence of the duty was um, passively confirmed uh, by the Supreme Court, even if its existence and rationale was not directly an issue. So although the Supreme Court didn't have to consider the existence and scope of the Prince Care duty in any detail, uh, the way in which the duty was described by Baroness Hale, who gave the only judgment, was consistent with all the previous authorities. The duty was stated to be all about the bank being required to intercept uh, payment instructions dishonestly issued by an agent generally authorised to give the bank payment instructions on behalf of the customer. Uh, and we see that there in the bold passage at the end where Baroness Hale says, by definition, this, the misappropriation, is done by a trusted agent of the company who is authorised to withdraw its money from the account. Now, after the death of Casey over the previous 30 years, uh, Singularis heralded something of a golden era for the Prince Care duty, uh, which suddenly started featuring in lots of cases. And we've listed some of the more prominent ones uh, on the slide. The first case went to the Court of Appeal, the second to the Privy Council, and the third to the Supreme Court. But interestingly, in each of these cases, as in fact in Singularis, the courts proceeded on the basis that the Quince Care duty was a well-established and conventional uh, principle of law, and none of the judges sought to question its existence or its underlying basis. So the essential facts that all of these cases share are essentially twofold. First, the customer at the bank appointed authorised signatories who were able to give instructions to the bank to make payments from the customer account. And secondly, one of the authorised signatories gave the bank a payment instruction which was designed to misappropriate the customer's funds uh, rather than being uh, for the customer's own purposes. Uh, and this kind of fraud is referred to in the authorities as internal fraud, and it depends on the individual person who issued the instruction being distinct from and an agent of the customer. Uh, this most commonly applies uh, whether a customer is a company or a partnership, as had been the case in all the previous decisions, because companies and partnerships obviously can only act by agents. Um, but the principle can also apply where an individual account holder authorises someone else to issue payment instructions on his or her behalf. Uh, this limitation to internal fraud reflects the statements uh, that we've seen in the authorities, especially in Quinsclare itself, that the duty is concerned with whether the payment instruction is itself an attempt to misappropriate the customer's funds. By contrast, in the case of external fraud, where a bank customer, whether a company or an individual, has been duped by a third party into issuing a payment instruction, um, different considerations come into play. Because in a case like that, it can't realistically be said that the payment instruction is itself an attempt to misappropriate the customer's funds. So before Philip, there was no English authority uh, recognising that the quince care duty or any expanded form of it could apply to cases of external fraud. The principle was understood as being limited and to internal rules. So that was the state of the law when Philip came to be decided. The facts of the case are, on any view, extremely sad. In broad outline, Mr and Mrs Philip were deceived by a fraudster into paying £700,000 in two instalments from Mrs Philip's account with Barclays to two accounts controlled by the fraudster in the United Arab Emirates. A fraudster uh, who claimed to be working for the Financial Conduct Authority and the National Crime Agency persuaded the Phillips to do this by falsely telling them that the money needed to be moved to so-called safer cats because it was otherwise vulnerable to fraud. The payment instructions were issued by Mrs Phillip personally at two Barclays branches, and the account was in her sole name, and she was the only person able to issue instructions to Barclays uh, to transfer money from the account. 
So there was no agent involved in the issuing of the payment instructions. Uh, and this kind of fraud, as everyone knows, has come to be known in the jargon as APP, or Authorised Push Payment Fraud, and authorised because the payment is made with the customer's consent and authorization, and push because the money is being sent from the account rather than being pulled from it, as would be the case, for example, with a direct debit. So Mrs. Phillip sued the bank, claiming that it should not have acted on her instructions to make the payments. Uh, her case was that this was because uh, the bank should have appreciated that there was a risk that she had been deceived into making the payments uh, by a third party. Uh, this duty was set by Mrs. Phillip to be an aspect of the principle applied in Quince Care or um, else an extension of it that the law should recognise. The bank applied for summary judgment on the ground that it said it did not, as a matter of law, owe the duty on which the claim is based. And at first instance, uh, his honour judge Russell uh, granted summary judgment in the bank's favour, and he agreed with the bank uh, that the quids care duty did not apply to APP frauds because it was limited to cases of internal fraud, that's to say misappropriation by the customer's agent. Uh, the case then went to the Court of Appeal uh, last year, where Mrs Phillips' appeal was allowed. The essential reasoning was that although all of the previous Prince Care cases had involved misappropriation by dishonest agents, that was essentially fortuitous, and the applicable legal principle went wider than that. Uh, we see that most clearly from the second bullet point, where Lord Justice Burse uh, said that he holds that as a matter of law, the duty of care identified in Prince Care uh, does not depend on the fact that the bank is instructed by an agent of the customer of the bank. So the Court of Appeal decided that the Prince Care duty might be capable of applying where a bank was on inquiry that a customer had been uh, caused to make a payment instruction as a result of deception practiced by a third party. Um, or, as Lord Justice Burst put it, and we see that in the final bullet point, uh, where the instruction had been vitiated by APP fraud. But the Court decided that the existence and scope of such a duty couldn't be decided on a summary basis, and that there therefore had to be a trial. Um, so that is where matters stood um, as a result of the Court of Appeal's decision. Ian is going to explain how the Court of Appeal reasoning fared in the Supreme Court. Thanks, David. Barclay sought permission to appeal from the Supreme Court, contending that the Court of Appeal had upended the settled scope of the Quince Care duty by finding that it could extend to a situation where the customer is not acting through an agent, but had personally instructed the bank to make payment. UK Finance and the Consumers Association intervened in the appeal, and the essential issue before the Supreme Court was whether the Court of Appeal was right to conclude that Quince Care could apply in a case of APP fraud. Following an expedited hearing in early 2023, the Supreme Court handed down judgment in July. The appeal was allowed, and the Court concluded that the Quince Care duty had no application to APP fraud. Lord Leggett, giving the judgment of the Court, held that the Court of Appeal's decision was inconsistent with first principles of banking law. The judgment looked set to become leading authority analysing the duties of a bank when faced with a payment instruction. Lord Leggett began his analysis by considering the duties of a bank to its customer. The starting point in this context is the bank's primary obligation to pay. Where a customer's account is in credit, a bank must make payments from that account in accordance with the customer's instructions. The bank doesn't ordinarily have any discretion or choice. It must do what the customer has instructed. There are certain limited exceptions, in particular, if making the payment would entail the bank acting unlawfully or incurring legal liability. An example might be where the anti-money laundering regime in poker is engaged. Absent an exception, however, liability under the mandate is strict, and if the bank fails to comply with an instruction, it is prima facie liable for consequential losses. A related principle is that it is not the role of a bank to concern itself with the wisdom or the risks of a customer's payment instruction. This reflects long-standing authority. In Lipkin Gorman, for example, Lord Justice May approved a 19th century case holding that the plain general rule as between banker and customer is that the bank is not to inquire for what purpose monies are being drawn out of the account. This also reflects the approach of His Honour Judge Russell at first instance in Philip. He had held that it was for a bank's customer to decide how his or her money should be spent, and a bank is under no duty to second-guess a customer's spending decisions. 
the Supreme Court has now effectively endorsed that approach. We can now turn to the bank's duty of care. The bank owes a duty to carry out the service with reasonable care and skill. That is implied into the contract as a matter of law in the normal way, in Mrs Phillips' case under Section 49 of the Consumer Rights Act. The bank also owes an equivalent duty to the customer in tort. However, Lord Leggett emphasised that since the duty in tort arose out of the contractual relationship, it could be no more extensive than the contractual duty and therefore did not add anything to the analysis. The duty of care is circumscribed by the bank's duties under the contract. As Lord Leggett put it, the bank's primary obligation to make payment under the mandate leaves the bank with very little discretion. It is possible for a customer's instruction to give the bank latitude in particular situations. It might leave open the method by which funds should be transferred, or the bank might need to clarify the instructions if they are ambiguous. The bank then needs to act as a reasonably skillful and careful banker would. However, where there is no latitude, the bank must simply comply with its primary duty and execute the instruction. The same point can be expressed by saying that the bank's duty of care is subordinate to the primary duty to pay. Mr Justice Stay had recognised this in Quint's care, and Lord Leggett held that this was clearly right. The duty of care is directed towards the effective execution of the order. It does not, therefore, allow the bank to decline to execute a valid and proper order. That would emasculate the bank's primary duty to pay. The Supreme Court proceeded to analyse the reasoning of the Court of Appeal and held that Mrs Phillips' case did not fall within the scope of what had been decided in Quince Care. The Court of Appeal had accepted that the Quince Care duty was directly applicable in cases of APV fraud and had accepted the claimant's argument that Mrs Phillips' order was an attempt to misappropriate funds. The Supreme Court held that that was wrong. Where a customer is tricked by a fraudster into transferring his or her own funds, that is a different factual situation to the internal agency fraud that has been considered in the Quince Carolina cases. Lord Leggett did not regard the misappropriation point as critical to the Court of Appeals reasoning, however. He held that the critical point, which had been drawn from Mr Justice Stain's analysis in Quince Care, was that the bank has a primary duty to pay and a conflicting duty to exercise reasonable care and skill, which may require the bank not to pay. Lord Leggett proceeded to disapprove a number of aspects of Mr Justice Stain's reasoning in Quince Care. As he put it, the analytical approach adopted in Quince Care and followed by the Court of Appeal here does not withstand scrutiny. It is flawed at each stage. Lord Leggett did not doubt the ultimate conclusion reached in Quince Care, but as we'll come on to see in a minute, he preferred to explain the case on a different basis. The Supreme Court held that the first flaw in Mr Justice Stain's analysis was to characterise a bank's duty of care as conflicting with the duty to execute the instruction. There cannot be such a conflict once a bank's duties are properly understood, as I've already outlined. If a bank receives a valid payment order, which is clear and leaves no room for interpretation on the part of the bank, the bank's duty is simply to execute the order. The primary duty to pay is the start and the end of the analysis. The second flaw was the method that Mr Justice Stain had used to try and address the perceived conflict between the duties. Mr Justice Stain had no principled way to do this and therefore he had sought to strike a compromise between competing policy considerations. Lord Leggett held that this was not an appropriate way to identify what duty was owed under a contract. The question of what was a fair balance or a sensible compromise was a matter for legislators and other policymakers. The courts, by contrast, he held, are concerned with seeking to give effect in this context to the presumed common intention of contracting parties. The Supreme Court expressly acknowledged that it would be possible for a bank to agree that it will not comply with a payment instruction if it had reasonable grounds for believing that the customer had been tricked into authorising it. 
But this is not an ordinary incident of the contractual relationship between banker and customer. Put another way, the duties that Mrs. Phillip was seeking to establish would require express agreement before they could be invoked. The Supreme Court also distinguished between a clause in a bank's terms and conditions that give it the right to decline to act on a transaction where it reasonably suspects APP fraud and a provision imposing a duty on the bank to decline to act. Many banks have clauses in their standard contracts allowing them to decline to pay. But as Lord Leggett held, having such a right is obviously not the same as the bank being under a duty to stop payments subject to APP fraud. We have already seen that Mr Justice Stain's reasoning in Quince Care had assumed that Barclays had received a valid and proper order from Mr Stiller, which it was prima facie bound to execute. He therefore assumed that an agent's fraud had no effect on the validity of the order. The Supreme Court held that this premise was not correct, and this then opened the door to an alternative agency-based explanation for the Quince Care line of cases. Where a fraudulent agent instructs a bank, Lord Leggett recognised that there are two possible ways that the matter might be analysed. On the one hand, it might be said that the fraudulent agent is misusing their principal's authority. On that approach, the agent has got authority to instruct the bank, and there is a valid and proper order, but the agent is in breach of duty, and the principal can then pursue them for the loss caused by the bank acting on the instruction. On the other hand, an alternative analysis might be that a fraudulent agent lacks authority altogether where he's defrauding their, his or her principal. It would follow on that analysis that there's no valid order at all. It's convenient to distinguish between actual and apparent authority in this context, and I'll address them in turn. Turning first to actual authority, the Supreme Court held that an agent would not have actual authority to issue a dishonest order to the bank. This fits with actual authority turning on what has been agreed between the agent and the principal. Lord Leggett regarded it as inconceivable in practice that any sane principal would ever agree to confer authority on an agent to defraud him or her. Apparent authority is, however, different. Whether an agent has apparent authority doesn't turn on what has been agreed between the agent and the principal. What matters is what the principal has conveyed about the agent's authority. This then protects the legitimate expectations of a third party who has acted on the basis of an agent's usual authority and without knowing of the true position. It can therefore protect a third party who deals with a fraudulent agent. Importantly, there are limits on apparent authority. It does not apply if the third party is on notice the agent is acting without authority. Therefore, if a third party has reason to believe that the agent lacks authority or is acting dishonestly and fails to make reasonable inquiries, it will not be protected by apparent authority. Prior to the Supreme Court's decision in Philip, there were inconsistent decisions about how far apparent authority extended and when it ceased to be available. In the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal decision in the Akai Holdings case in 2011, Lord Newberger had held that a bank was entitled to rely on apparent authority unless it had actual knowledge of the agent's lack of authority or if the belief in the agent's authority was dishonest or irrational. This decision was then followed in various cases in England, including the Court of Appeal decision in Quinn, which I set out on the slide. By contrast, in the East Asia decision in 2019, the Privy Council noted the academic criticism of Akai and declined to follow it. It held that the better approach was to adopt a reasonableness-based test and consider whether the third party failed to make the inquiries that a reasonable person would have made in all the circumstances in order to verify the agent's authority. This sets a more exacting test for the third party to satisfy if they're seeking to establish apparent authority. Lord Leggett considered the inconsistency in the cases and held that the East Asia approach should be adopted going forward. This aspect of the reasoning in Philip is likely to have wider implications, well beyond the banking context, 
For example, in any case where a party is trying to hold a counterparty to a transaction that was entered into without actual authority. The adoption of East Asia in England and Wales may also be significant to multi-jurisdictional disputes involving English contracts where there are foreign elements involved. It is not uncommon to have a dispute about authority to conclude an English law contract where the contractual counterparty and their agent are both based overseas, for example. The question of actual authority will commonly then be a question of foreign law, but the question of apparent authority will still be governed by the law governing the contract, i.e. English law. As the Supreme Court has now confirmed, in that situation, East Asia will guide the court's approach on apparent authority. Lord Leggett reasoned that if these principles of agency law are applied to the principal airline of cases, they provide the justification for the outcome. An agent does not have actual authority to instruct the bank to make a fraudulent payment from the customer's bank account. However, it may still have apparent authority to do so. And that depends on whether or not the bank is on inquiry. If the bank is on inquiry, the duty to exercise reasonable skill and care can then be engaged so as to oblige the bank to check whether the instruction is actually authorised. The ambit of the bank's inquiry in this situation ordinarily will be narrow and confined. The bank can check with its customer what its instructions are. That is very different from the type of duty that Mrs Phillip was contending for. That would have imposed a duty of scrutiny, in, not in relation to the bank's authority from its customer, i.e. the traditional Prince Care case, but in relation to the customer's interactions with the third-party fraudster. In an agency situation, there has been a debate in the academic literature about how far the bank's mandate protects the bank when it is given a fraudulent instruction by an authorised signatory. Professor Peter Watts has argued that the correct default rule is that the bank should follow the agent's instructions unless it knows or is willfully blind to their dishonesty. Lord Leggett noted that Professor Watts's writings on Quince Care had done much to illuminate the law. He agreed that it would be possible in principle for a bank mandate to confer direct authority on the bank to follow a particular person's instructions, even if the agent was acting dishonestly and would not otherwise have authority. Lord Leggett did not, however, agree that a mandate should be construed in this way without express wording to that effect. That means that if a bank unreasonably pays a dishonest agent's payment instruction, despite being on inquiry as to their authority, it will be liable to the customer for making that payment. On this approach, the Quince Care line of cases have a conventional agency explanation. The bank made a payment out of the account, which was not on the instructions of the bank's customer. Without an instruction from the bank's customer, the bank has no entitlement to debit the account. It is therefore in breach of mandate, and it's obliged to recredit the customer with the sum paid away. Paddy is now going to address the implications of the Supreme Court's decision and where it leaves the law, both in agency and APP fraud cases. There are a number of implications that could be taken uh, quite shortly as they flow directly from what the Supreme Court has held, as Ian has uh, already uh, addressed. It's now clear that the so-called Quinsca duty is not some special rule of law. It's simply an application of the general duty of care owed by a bank to interpret, ascertain and act in accordance with the customer's instructions. Uh, where, where the bank has reasonable grounds for believing that a payment instruction given by an agent purportedly on behalf of the customer is an attempt to defraud the customer, the general duty requires the bank to refrain from executing the instruction without first making inquiries to verify that the instruction has actually been authorised by the customer. If the bank executes the instruction without making such inquiries and the instruction proves to have been given without the customer's authority, the bank will be in breach of duty. And in making the payment in those circumstances, the bank will also be acting outside the scope of its authority from the customer and will therefore not be entitled to debit the payment to the customer's account. Now, these principles are 
of no application in an APP4 context, because in that situation, the validity of the customer's instruction is not in doubt. And provided that the instruction is clear and is given by the customer personally or by an agent acting with apparent authority, uh, no inquiries are needed by the bank to clarify or verify what it must do. Uh, the bank's duty is to execute the instruction and any refusal or, or failure to do so will prior facie be a breach of duty by the bank. Issues as to the customer's intention in issuing the payment instruction are entirely irrelevant. The fact that the customer has been induced by fraud to issue the payment instruction does not vitiate that instruction. The fraud in the payment transaction, i.e. between the customer and the payee, does not invalidate the instruction or permit the customer to rescind the instruction that the bank has not perpetrated any fraud on the customer and the customer has no right of rescission as against the bank. Uh, the right of rescission lies with the customer as against the payee. As Ian has already said, uh, Lord Leggett stressed, perhaps taking a more traditional and conventional view of the court role, that the problem of APP fraud was one that was for the regulators, government and parliament to find a solution, uh, not the courts. As we say there on the slide, a plank in Lord Leggett's reasoning was the desirability of aligning the requirement of reasonable reliance incorporated in the doctrine of apparent authority with the duty to exercise reasonable skill and care owed by the bank. And he recognised that the nature of the modern banking world, such as the vast number of transactions processed by the bank uh, on a daily basis, and the speed at which those transactions are expected to be processed that will naturally affect what reasonable skill and care requires. Now, there are further implications of the Supreme Court judgment, which, while not spelled out by Lord Leggett, uh, appear to be natural consequences. That first, if a payment is made without inquiry, when the bank is on notice that the payment is being made for the signatory's own purposes, then the bank is acting outside of its mandate with the consequence that the bank is not entitled to debit the amount to the customer's account. And the upshot is that the customer has a claim in debt against the bank. And provided that the customer is not claiming consequential losses, it is not necessary for the customer to prove that the agent's dishonesty would have been revealed had reasonable inquiries been made. And by the same token, it will not avail the bank to argue that if reasonable inquiries had been made, the fraud would not have been revealed and the payment would still have been made. Uh, the second point is that it being a claim in debt, the bank is not able to claim contributory negligence, uh, which is a notable difference from the outcome in Singularis, where, uh, as uh, uh, David said, the bank succeeded in such a defence, reducing the damages by 25%. And the third point is that the fact that the customer has a claim in debt also has ramifications for limitation in that time will not start running until the customer demands payment from the bank for the wrongly debited sum. So that is likely to prove to be more favourable to the customer than in relation to a damages claim. Now, having uh, said that the so-called uh, Quince care duty is of no application in an APP4 context. Uh, that should not be thought to be the end of the matter. Uh, first, because the Supreme Court has left open the possibility of other common law duties applying. And second, because as we'll come on to see a little later, there have been some recent changes, both through legislation and regulation, that are going to bear upon uh, banks' obligations in connection with APP fraud. Now, as regards uh, other uh, common law duties, three points are worth highlighting. First, it is clear that it is an implied condition of the mandate that a bank will act honestly towards its customer. Uh, Mr Justice Brightman said as much in the case of crack rubber over 50 years ago, uh, and we conceded that such duty existed before the Supreme Court in Philip. 
So the duty of care or, or the duty of a bank to carry out its customers' uh, valid payment instructions is not without limit. Therefore, it is at least theoretically possible that a bank could act in breach of that duty of honesty in an APP fraud context, but only on extreme facts where the bank has made a payment with actual knowledge that the customer had been defrauded and the bank affects payment in furtherance of that fraud. The second conceivable duty is one to which, at least during the hearing before the Supreme Court, Lord Leggett seemed attracted. In the Australian case of Ryan and Bank of New South Wales, which is uh, there on the slide, uh, Mr Justice McGarvey uh, stated that there could be circumstances in which a person who has a duty to execute an order by another person would not reasonably be expected to comply literally with that order. And he gave various examples, uh, such as a carrier carrying goods under a contract to a factory would act unreasonably if on arrival the factory was on fire, but the carrier nonetheless went ahead and affected delivery. And applying this sort of reasoning to a bank receiving a payment instruction, uh, Mr Justice McGarvey said that if a reasonable banker, properly applying their mind to the situation, would know that the customer would not want his instruction to be carried out if it was aware of the circumstances known to the bank, then the bank should not comply with the instruction. Now, it's interesting that this decision of Ryan, which, as I say, dates back to 1978, has not, as far as we could establish, ever been considered by the English courts, and all have the principles underlying it. And as I said, during the hearing, Lord Leggett seemed attracted to the idea of there being such a restriction on the mandate, but ultimately uh, he was persuaded away from expressing any concluded uh, view in Philip, as it didn't arise on the facts and was a point on which the Supreme Court had not heard full argument. So this is perhaps a point for a later case, but it seems unlikely to assist a customer in a regular APP fraud case. And I say that for, for two reasons. First, the test propounded by Mr. Justice McGarvey requires actual knowledge on the part of the bank. Constructive knowledge will not suffice. Second, the test presupposes that the circumstances known to the bank are, as the bank is aware, not known to the customer. But in a regular APP fraud situation, the facts that the customer usually relies on as the indicia of fraud, such as the size of the payments or the identity or location of the payee, are all known to the customer. But Lord Leggett said that if a bank receives reliable information from a source such as the police, suggesting that a customer's payment instruction has, in circumstances unknown to the customer, been procured by fraud, it may be right for the bank to refrain from executing that instruction uh, without first alerting the customer to this information uh, and verifying whether the customer still wishes to proceed with the transaction. But as I say, that was a point that was left open by the judgment in Philip. So that was the second possible duty. The third possible duty arose on Mrs. Phillips' alternative case. Uh, she argued that the bank was in breach of duty after the fraud had been discovered in not taking adequate steps to recover the money which had been transferred to the UAE. Now, the factual basis for this argument was that the bank had received a tip-off from the police about a week after the payments had been made but uh, although the bank froze the accounts and refused to, in fact, make, refused to make a third transfer that Mrs. Philip wished to make, uh, it was only about two months later that the bank took steps to try to recall the payments that had been made. Now, in respect of this alternative claim, the Supreme Court Court declined to grant a summary judgment in the bank's favour, even though they recognised that even if the bank had acted earlier, the chance that any of the money transferred to the UAE uh, would have been successfully reclaimed was very slim. So this very limited aspect of the claim will instead proceed to trial. Now, there are a number of problems with this aspect of the case, but I'll just flag uh, two of them for present purposes. 
First, it's not, in fact, at all clear what this arguable duty is. Uh, whatever this post-execution duty is, it is of a very different character to the pre-execution duty of interpreting, ascertaining, and acting in accordance with the instructions of the customer. But you will not, I'm afraid to say, find any help in the Supreme Court's judgment in identifying the juridical basis for whatever this duty is, and it's not clear what it might be. Second, whatever the nature and scope of the supposed duty, it doesn't sit very neatly with the payment services regulations, which render a payment instruction irrevocable uh, once it is received by the bank. And the regulations make only very limited provision for the circumstances in which a bank uh, must make reasonable efforts to recover the funds, uh, which aren't engaged on the facts of Mrs. Phillips' case, or indeed on those that usually arise in an APP fraud context. In any event, even if such a duty uh, did exist, uh, there are likely to be, as Lord Leggett uh, uh, himself noted, real causation difficulties for a customer running this sort of argument. Now, as I said earlier, Lord Leggett was keen to stress that whether victims of APP fraud should be left to bear the losses themselves, or, or whether the losses should be covered by banks was a question of social policy for regulators, government uh, and parliament to consider. Uh, and that then brings us on to the, the current legislation and proposals for reform. The principal piece of legislation applicable to payment services uh, is the Payment Services Regulations 2017, which enacted the second Payment Services Directive. Importantly, for present purposes, the regulation draws a distinction between authorised and unauthorised transactions. Uh, payment service providers will generally be liable for unauthorised payments only, uh, whereas the, if the payment is authorised, the payment service provider will not be liable for the customer's losses, even if they've been subject to an APP fraud. Indeed, it's notable that the only authorised transactions for which the regulations provide for refunds is in relation to certain pool payments, such as direct debits, uh, rather than push payments, and even then only in the very limited circumstances identified in Regulation 79. So in an APP fraud context, no liability can arise under the regulations by the bank affecting payment. And this was yet another reason why, why we, and indeed UK Finance, uh, said that the Court of Appeals decision was wrong because the duty which it had uh, held to at least arguably exist did not fit coherently into the detailed and carefully structured legislation under which the banks are required to operate. Now, in relation to APP frauds, in May 2019, the industry launched what is termed the CRM code, Contingent Reimbursement Model Code. And that code, which identifies the circumstances in which a defrauded customer may be reimbursed by the bank, is voluntary in nature and only applies to domestic transfers. Breach of the code does not give rise to a cause of action on the part of the customer, but, but FOS has made clear that compliance with the code is one of the matters that it takes into account when considering what is fair and reasonable in all the circumstances of the case. Having afforded the opportunity to the industry to provide a remedy, the payment systems regulator was not satisfied that this voluntary code went far enough. And following various consultations, one of the changes that it proposed was to make reimbursement mandatory in certain situations. And the view was taken by the regulator that because of the terms of the payment services regulations, mandatory reimbursement could not be done without a change in legislation. And that has resulted in Section 72 of the recently enacted Financial Services and Markets Act 2023. And Section 72 enables the payment systems regulator to issue a direction or requirement to participants in the regulated payment systems for losses to be reimbursed where the payment was executed over the faster payment system 
and was, quote, executed subsequent to fraud or dishonesty. So that's framed in sufficiently broad terms so as to catch APP frauds. The payment systems regulator issued that requirement in June of this year, and it will come into force at some point in 2024, which is yet to be determined. And in short, the requirement requires payment firms to reimburse all in-scope customers, in particular payments made over, as I say, the fast payment system, uh, fast payment scheme, who become victims of APP fraud. And the reimbursement is shared 50-50 between the sending and the receiving bank. But as we say on the slide, once it's in force, breach of that requirement will not be directly enforceable uh, by bank customers. There is also the FCA's new consumer duty to consider, and that came into force at the end of July this year. And one of the, the core rules that forms part of that duty is the cross-cutting rule that quotes a firm must avoid causing foreseeable harm to retail customers. The guidance issued by the FCA identifies as an example of foreseeable harm a situation where a consumer becomes a a victim of a scam uh, due to the bank's inadequate systems to detect or prevent scams relating to its financial products. And it makes clear that banks are expected to warn customers about the threat of APP scams in a clear and effective manner. Uh, That said, the, the guidance issued by the FCA makes clear that the duty does not require the bank to, quote, prevent an insistent customer from making decisions or acting in a way that the firm considers to be against their interests. So provided that the bank helps the customer to understand the consequences of their decisions, if a customer insists on a course of action the bank regards as harmful, the bank are not obliged to prevent it. But as we flag on the slide, a breach of the consumer duty is not actionable by the customer. So there you have it. An interesting discussion on the implications of the Supreme Court's decision in Philip and Barclays Bank and where this leaves the so-called Quintscare duty. I hope our listeners have enjoyed the discussion. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. 